I want to start today by telling you a story. It was a story of a minister that was walking home from his church one day, and he came across a group of boys that had surrounded a dog. And of course, the minister was intrigued while they were all standing around this dog, so he walked up and he began asking them, why are you all here around this dog? And one of the boys explained to him, said, well, pastor, uh, this dog is the neighborhood stray. And so every day we gather around and we decide who's going to take the dog home for that night. And on this particular day, we decided that the way we would decide that is by whoever could tell the biggest lie. The minister is appalled. How is it you boys could be telling lies to each other? And the minister begins a 10-minute sermon about the the, the egregious way that lying ruins our character and our conscience and gets to the end of his 10-minute sermon and tells the boys, when I was your age, I never told a lie. Well, after about 10 seconds of silence, the smallest boy walks over to the minister and hands him the leash and says, well, that settles it, pastor, you win. <laughs> when I started college, I was told that lying was an untruth meant to deceive when I took ethics. An untruth meant to deceive. And often what we're taught is that the opposite of lying is being honest. And being honest is about authentically bearing witness to the truth in ourselves. So that, like we heard in the story from Daniel chapter 6, if there's a moment at which we're accused of something, we need to tell the truth as hard as that might be for us to do. But there's another layer here, not just lying, not just honesty, but integrity. And one of the most important voices in my life that's informed me about integrity is law professor Stephen Carter. We're going to put his picture up on the screen. And Dr. Carter wrote a book a number of years ago called Integrity. And in that book, he suggests that integrity involves three different things. Knowing the truth, acting in truth, defending the truth. Knowing the truth, acting in truth, and defending the truth. So when we talk about integrity, how does that match this beatitude we have before us today from Matthew chapter 5 verse 8? Remember these beatitudes are about ways in which we experience God's blessing. They all follow the same formula. Blessed are the blank, for they shall be blank. And this week, the beatitude that we have before us is an important one. It's up on the screen. Happy are people who have pure hearts because they will see God. What does that verse have to do with integrity? Well, it really does have everything to do with integrity. Where it says in that particular verse, those who have pure hearts... An accurate way to translate this for us to hear correctly is that happy are those who have integrity. So usually when we think of a pure heart, we think of it through kind of our, our Western sort of lens. And in that lens, we, we believe that the heart is the seat of emotion. It's where we feel things, passion, anger, whatever it might be. And that our mind is the place where we make decisions, where we reason things out, where we act. In the Jewish world, it's exactly the opposite. The heart in the Jewish world is the seat of will, not of emotion. 
It's the place where we reason things out, where we make decisions. So when you're reading the Bible and it says heart, you almost want to think to yourself mind in terms of what it means. The scriptures are telling us that there's this way in which we practice a form of integrity. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. The best way to translate that would be integrity or to um, have a sense of obedience to God that's unconditional. Being pure of heart is not just about not lying, and it's not just about being honest. It's about having integrity. And so let me put a question to you today. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Something for you to wonder about at this moment and maybe during the week. How pure of heart are you? And how might you assess this? How could you perform any kind of self-examination around that? If, if pure of heart is about integrity, that's a different level beyond simple honesty. And so let's hear a passage of Scripture that highlights for us this practice of integrity. I'm going to invite Pastor Emeritus, Mark Abbott, to come, and he is going to read for us the companion story to the one you heard in Daniel. Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 6 are parallel stories with each other. In Daniel 6, we read about Daniel in the lion's den. And in Daniel 3, the story you're about to read is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the so-called fiery furnace. Pastor Mark. Daniel 3, 19 to 30. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage and his face twisted beyond recognition because of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In response, he commanded that the furnace be heated to seven times its normal heat. He told some of the strongest men in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of flaming fire. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were bound still dressed in all their clothes and thrown into the furnace of flaming fire. Now the king's command had been rash, and the furnace was heated to such an extent that the fire's flame killed the very men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to to it. So these three men, who were they? Thank you. They fell bound into the furnace of flaming fire, And then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in shock and said to his associates, But didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? And they answered the king, Certainly, your majesty. He replied, Look, I see four men unbound, walking around and inside the fire, and they aren't hurt. And the fourth one looks like one of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar went near the opening of the furnace of flaming fire and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the chief administrators, ministers, governors, king's associates crowded around to look at them. The fire hadn't done anything to them. Their hair wasn't singed. Their garments looked the same as before. They didn't even smell like fire. So Nebuchadnezzar declared, May the God of Shadrach, Meshach, 
and Abednego be praised. He sent his messenger to rescue his servants who trusted him. They ignored the king's order, sacrificing their bodies because they wouldn't serve or worship any god but their god. I now issue a decree to every people, nation, and language. Whoever speaks disrespectfully about Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego's god will be torn limb from limb and their house made a trash heap because there is no other god who can rescue like this. Then the king made Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego prosperous in the province of Babylon. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Pastor Mark. That particular text mentions Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego six times. Did you get that? Pastor Mark was quizzing you to make sure you got that as you went along. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are their Babylonian names. So as the history plays out, follow along with me, that the southern kingdom of Judah and its capital, Jerusalem, were conquered by the Neo-Babylonian Empire in three waves, 605, 597, and 586 BCE. And the city was destroyed, the Jewish temple wiped out that Solomon had built, and many most of the Jews were taken to Babylon in exile. And here's where they found themselves. And so Daniel is the story about four of those different exiles, one being Daniel, the other three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they arrived in Babylon, they were given Babylonian names. Those names honor Babylonian gods. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You can read their actual Hebrew names, their given names, in Daniel chapter 1, and their names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so as a form of practicing some integrity, I'm only going to refer to them by their Hebrew names. Are y'all cool with that? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. As the story plays out, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's a bit of a narcissist. And so he decides that he's going to build a golden statue of himself and everyone needs to bow down and worship the statue at an appointed time. Well, needless to say, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah don't bow down and worship the statue. And like Daniel, you saw in the earlier video, they get ratted out to King Nebuchadnezzar and then they're called to give an account. So in the account that goes back and forth between Nebuchadnezzar and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, you heard the text that Pastor Mark read. Nebuchadnezzar becomes enraged that they would not worship his golden statue and thus sentences them to go into the so-called fiery furnace. How many of you in the sanctuary and even at home, wherever you are, raise your hand if you heard this story first as a child? All right, good. I never heard this story as a child because I didn't go to church as a child. I was never in a children's Sunday school class as a child. I didn't become a Christian until I was 13. I share that with you to say this, is that I have only heard this story as an adult, not as a child. And so just for today, I know there are children here, but just for today, hear this story with adult ears. Pretend like you've never heard this story before, that today is the first time. So Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, are faced with King Nebuchadnezzar in all his rage because they won't bow and worship his silly statue. And so they're going to be thrown into an incinerator. 
It's a place where the Babylonians would typically burn their trash. It's basically a big hole in the ground that had a mound over it with a little door. And they would open the door and throw the trash inside, cover the door, and there would be a a flue in the top of it by which the, the smoke and gases would eventually get out of the furnace. The story plays out conventionally enough, the way you remember it from Sunday school, but there's one little twist to it that they probably didn't teach you in Sunday school. As a matter of fact, it's a twist in the story that even Bible translators have a hard time putting into the text. And it happens a couple of verses earlier than what Pastor Mark read. It's in Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. It's right at the end of the argument between Nebuchadnezzar and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And here's how it's translated. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, I'm going to read your translation on the screen, answered King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to answer your question. If our God, the one whom we serve, is able to rescue us from the furnace of flaming fire and from your power, your majesty, then let him rescue us. But if he doesn't, know this for certain, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. Now, one of the translation problems in this text is, keep it right up on the screen. See at verse 18 where it says, but if he doesn't, it's a conditional statement. That word or that verb for he doesn't, all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, every place it occurs, over 20 times that verb occurs in the Old Testament, it's always translated as cannot always, except for this one place. Because for some reason, Bible translators can't quite bring themselves to render the text the way it's rendered everywhere else in the Bible, and it would read like this. I'll start at the end of verse, six, uh, verse 17. If our God, the one we serve, is able to save us from the furnace of flaming fire and from your power, your majesty, then let him rescue us. Here's verse 18. But if he cannot... Know this for certain, your majesty. We will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. So I'll let you take that up with the Bible translators. But what I can tell you is this, is that that little nuance in the text, that just little movement of understanding this, the way it comes out of its original Hebrew is important because it speaks to integrity, doesn't it? And it also speaks to the honesty of their doubt, their hesitation, the sense of uncertainty they have in that moment. They're trusting in what God has said, not necessarily what they think or speculate God will do. That's where integrity comes into play. So let's rewind back to Stephen Carter and see how it plays out in the text. How does integrity work here? Well, Dr. Carter says, number one, you have to know the truth. And they know the truth, don't they? What's it say in the Ten Commandments? Who's the only God? Yahweh. And there's no other God. That's truth number one. So they know that truth. Then Dr. Carter says we have to act in the truth. And the way they do that is they refuse to bow and worship the golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Because the Ten Commandments also tell them what? Do not worship any graven image, either of Yahweh or anything else. And then we get to the last part where Dr. Carter suggests that we have to defend the truth. And that's where the verses I just read a moment ago come into play. 
defending the truth is when they get hauled in before Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar says, look, guys, if you don't bow and worship the statue, I'm going to throw you in the oven. And they say, if our God is able to save us, awesome. But if our God can't save us, we will tell you what to do with your golden statue because we will not bow and worship it. Do you see how the integrity works in the text? There's this sense in which even in all their uncertainty where they say, even if God can't, we're still not going to do this. And well, they end up getting thrown into the fiery furnace and you know how the story plays out and we'll come back to that in a moment. So here's a, a question I'd like to put before you as we think about this. At what moment does integrity matter the most? At what moment does integrity matter the most? And what can give us an honest assessment of it? You know, according to Carter, where people blink or hesitate with their integrity is when they get to the defend the truth part. They know the truth, they act in truth, but then when they're called to account or they're criticized or they're questioned, they try to spin it. They try to make it look like something it isn't. They try to make themselves look like the victim instead of the person who actually made the decision. They do all sorts of wiggling to try to explain away what they did. And Carter says that maybe they may be honest, but they do not have integrity. Because when the moment came for them to defend the truth, they blinked. Well, how does this play out in our lives? Well, let's um, talk maybe about what it means to be Methodist. How's that? Good. So we're going to talk about how integrity works in our life as Methodist people. And we're going to relate it a little bit to this text from Daniel and then tie it all back into Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. And we're going to magically do that in about eight minutes. Here it goes. Imagine a table with four legs on it. And these four legs are the way in which Methodists have a sense of integrity about their beliefs and their actions. It's called the quadrilateral. Ever heard of it? Oh, you have heard of it. You are awake. Excellent. You have heard of it. And so I want to talk with you about the quadrilateral is. And you're, you're saying, well, do I need to know that word? No, you don't need to know that word, all right? There is not going to be a test when you exit the building or you click off on the online message today. Four legs. Leg number one is scripture. Scripture. And for us, that means that scripture is prime. It's the most important part of this table that we're going to talk about. And so I'm going to share with you some things that John Wesley himself said, the founder of the Methodist movement. You know, it says Methodist on the sign outside, right? Good. We're going to talk about that. John Wesley said, we know all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is therefore true and right concerning all things. But we know likewise that there are some scriptures which more immediately commend themselves to every person's conscience. The primacy of scripture is important because it's our, our starting point. Do you see how scripture played a role in what Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah did? Why did they not bow and worship the statue? Because the scripture tells them not to do that. Don't worship any god besides Yahweh and don't worship a graven image. They knew their scripture. 
And so what I would suggest to you and what John Wesley is suggesting to you that there are scriptures that are very important to us and we need to commend ourselves to them and those scriptures to us. So reading scripture every day, memorizing scripture, spending time reading the Bible, engaging in practices that put us into that word that is in scripture is incredibly important and not to be forsaken for us. So as Methodist people, scripture is important. Are you ready for leg number two? Here we go. It's the word experience. Experience. John Wesley wrote in one of his letters something very important. He said, what the scriptures promise, I enjoy. I love this quote by Wesley. What he's suggesting is that what it says in the Bible, he enjoys it. In other words, what's there is something that's real in his own experience in his life. He participates in it. He engages in it. It's not a foreign story. The story of Scripture is powerful because it's real to him. In other words, our experience should harmonize with what we see in Scripture and how we hear those stories. Experience is important to us as Methodists because it's one of the chief ways that we oppose the Reformed doctrine of predestination. You know this doctrine. Some people are going to heaven, some people are going to hell, and God decided all that before the beginning of all things. We as Methodists reject that teaching and reject that doctrine. As a matter of fact, Charles Wesley wrote a famous hymn about this called The Horrible Decree. <laughs> Friends, we believe in free will. We believe in human agency and capacity. We believe that God gives to all grace to all people and we have the capacity to choose. Did not Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah have an opportunity to choose? Their experience was present with them in so many different ways. They had had a lifetime of living as Jewish men. They knew what it meant for them to be a part of the Jewish covenant. They knew what it meant for them to be a part of that rich thread of their lives that informed them their entire life. There are some of you who have been a part of this church for how many generations? Some of you, two, three, four generations. Your experience within this tradition is important. It informs you. Well, that leads us to the next word. Are you ready for it? Scripture, experience, tradition. Tradition. We're going to do a little fiddler on the roof today. What do you think? Perhaps not. John Wesley writes this about tradition. He says, do not undervalue traditional evidence. Now, we're not just talking about the tradition of the church. We're talking about all of the tradition of our life. Not only what the church has taught us, but maybe what our own family has taught us. Maybe what we've learned within this faith community together and have shared together. Tradition is about all of that stuff that flows to us that we know. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were part of a tradition, weren't they? They were part of a tradition of Jewish men, very similar to their experience. And that tradition had been handed down to them from generation to generation to generation. And it was handed to them by, are you sitting down? Traditionalists. People who held on to the past, but they held it in the right sort of way. So the way in which they held that tradition in exile in Babylon probably looked different than how they held that tradition when they were in Jerusalem, right? Being traditional doesn't mean that you're inflexible. 
I'm just going to set that there. Being traditional means that we hold on to the core values of who we are, but we constantly interpret them for the day in which we find ourselves. So when Nebuchadnezzar sticks a golden statue up right in front of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they refuse being the Jewish men that they are. Scripture experience, tradition, last one, reason. Reason. That's the fourth leg of the table. Here's what Mr. Wesley wrote. Beware, you are not a firing, fiery, persecuting enthusiast. Do not imagine that God has called you, just contrary to the spirit of him you style as master, to destroy men's lives. And do not save them. And not to save them. Never dream of forcing men into the ways of God. Think yourself and let think. Use no constraint in matters of religion. Even those who are farthest out of the way, never compel them to come in by any other means than, say the last three words with me, reason, truth, and love. Reason is important because we are not, as Wesley would say, sensationalists. We are not given over to being a judgmental people. Allow me to translate this into the 21st century. Friends, we are not religious fundamentalists. We never have been. This is not true to who we are. There are plenty other churches that are religiously fundamentalists. We are not. We are Wesleyan Methodists. And as Wesleyan Methodists, we believe that our, our reason, the informed way of thinking is critical for us, especially in this age in which we live in these culture wars that are constantly raging all the time across news headlines every single day. We're Methodists. And to be Methodist means a few things. What did Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah say? Even if our God does not save us, or even if our God cannot save us, you see, in their explanation to Nebuchadnezzar why they wouldn't worship his statue, just like a good math student, do you see how they showed their work? Showing their work means that their logic, their rationale, and their argument was clear. It was grounded in Scripture. It was framed by their experience. It was informed by their tradition. It made every sense in the world for them to stand in front of Nebuchadnezzar and say, we will never worship your silly statue. Methodists, historically, have been a people that are thoughtful, caring, careful, measured, and most of all, loving. So let me leave you with this question. Is there a situation in your life where the combination of scripture, experience, tradition, and reason might help? And how? The quadrilateral may seem like a, a bit of an academic lecture for you. Because when we read this text, blessed are the pure in heart, we think somehow this means that we should be chaste, modest. We think of it in terms of emotion. And Jesus doesn't mean to give us that message. The message he means to give us are blessed are those who have integrity, 
for they will see God. This beatitude has two idioms in it from the Jewish world. Idiom number one, pure of heart. That means integrity. They will see God. Every single Jewish person who heard Jesus say that knows exactly what that means. That in the Bible, up to that point, there are only two people who have ever seen God. Do you know who they are? We could have put it in the Bible trivia before the service. Moses and and mumbling. No, Elijah in the Bible. And even then, Moses and Elijah had to hide their face in the cleft of a rock so they wouldn't see the fullness of God's glory pass by. So when Jesus says, for they will see God, he's telling them that you can be just like Moses, just like Elijah. You can experience the fullness of who God is in a life of integrity. Don't you see that in Daniel chapter 3? Remember, they get thrown into the, the incinerator, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Nebuchadnezzar looks inside, and what does he see inside the furnace? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah dancing around in there, and what do his soldiers tell him? And we saw a fourth person in there who looked like, the way it's translated literally out of Hebrew, looked like a son of God. It's a rich story. I would argue that in that furnace, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah saw the Lord dancing with them in that furnace. Their integrity won the day. And so, friends, I'd simply leave you with this today. Consider what it means to be a person of integrity when it comes to our faith and our life together as Methodist people. Scripture experience, tradition, and reason. These all inform us as to who we are, how we make our decisions in a complex world. Because right now we live in a time where people think their opinions are supreme, what they think is true is truth, and what we hear Jesus suggesting to us is there's perhaps a new different way for us to live in this angry and polarized world. And that way is the way of integrity grounded in God's grace. So let's pray together.